0: The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So said Jesus, because Jesus believed and taught the absolute sovereignty of God, the Spirit regenerates, and he does so freely where he wishes. That quotation was from John chapter 3, verse 8. I'll read it again. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Provocative provocative statements from none other than Jesus. Too often we think, well, the Apostle Paul, he's the sovereignty guy when it comes to God or someone else, when in reality, when Jesus ascends to heaven, he's not all bothered because the Apostle Paul is teaching about the sovereignty of God. When you read John's gospel account, not just in John chapter three, but other texts like John chapter six and John chapter 10, Throughout, Jesus definitely affirms the absolute sovereignty of God. The spirit, for example, John chapter three, you see the effects, but the spirit blows wherever it wishes likened to the wind. The spirit is sovereign. We're talking about the sovereignty of God, and it is a provocative topic. So provocative that a church member said to me this morning in the first hour, he said, you know what, I'm having a real hard time with the sovereignty of God thing. I'm really struggling. And I said, I'm so glad you told me, and I'm so glad you're here. You may not stop struggling with this reality. But I hope, though it's a mystery to us as to exactly how God can be absolutely sovereign, And how all of that works in our lives and in the life of the world, I hope whether you're struggling with the reality or you're with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, blessing God for the reality, that you will find encouragement from the Bible about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, when we speak of the sovereignty of God, we're talking about the godness of God, we're talking about the freedom of God to do whatever it is he wants to do because he and he alone is God, that he, he doesn't consult us, he doesn't ask for committee meetings, he doesn't take counsel from anyone else, that he's all-wise and all-knowing and all-powerful, and he does everything that he does after the counsel of his own will. And that is jarring to the mind, especially of fallen human beings, What we wanna do is go from being jarred to being comforted and encouraged. So we're talking about the sovereignty of God. We'll return, Lord willing, we'll return uh, next week to our study of Matthew's Gospel account. Uh, But today we're gonna wrap up this series that we've been doing for the last few weeks on the sovereignty of God. I was encouraged to do this so as to help encourage people to think about God as God. I was also encouraged to do this to bring some comfort Amidst um, struggling Christians even in our own congregation regarding all of the events of the world around us as a good reminder that God is in charge and he's in control and he can be trusted so what we've been doing lately and I'm glad you're joining us even if you just are just joining us we've been looking at ten demonstrations of god's sovereignty of god's being ki- God being king of kings and lord of lords and today we're going to look at eight and or excuse me nine and ten so I'll just read the first Eight of them, I won't take any time whatsoever because we've reviewed in the past. So the first demonstration, number one, of God's sovereignty is in the world, in the physical world. Number two, in the angelic realm. Number three, in the animal realm. Another area where we saw the sovereignty of God. Number four, in national affairs. The next one, number five, in human affairs. Number six, in coincidental happenings, good luck and bad luck. Number seven, in his amazing care for his children. Number eight, in sinful human acts, he is sovereign. And now this morning, we're returning to number nine. God is sovereign in the realm of salvation. And we started this last time, but we didn't finish it last time, and it's one of the most controversial areas, and so I wanna spend a little extra time looking at God's sovereignty in salvation. God's freedom to act however it is he wants to act, to do it however he wants to do it, not asking for us to weigh in for better ideas or different ideas, that God saves. He delivers from sin and its consequences. That's what I mean by saves. But he does so freely, and he does so according to his perfect wisdom. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 1 is a text that we looked at last time. I'm gonna return to Ephesians 1, so you can find that if you'd like. I'll also make reference to a couple of other texts, like Romans 8 and John chapter 3, ever in passing, and Acts 13, as well as Ephesians chapter 2. Who's going to win the game today? No one knows. Somebody knows. Somebody knows. Just seeing if you believe in the sovereignty of God. To see Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. It says in verse 11 of chapter 1 In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Inheritance would, He's talking about salvation, redemption, forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation, all of those things. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That's sovereignty, okay? Our inheritance, our salvation, if we have it, comes by believing in Jesus. Yes, that's in Ephesians. But it is according to a plan. It is according to a purpose. And we obtain the inheritance, it says in that text, having been predestined. So there it is. As a brand new Christian, I didn't believe in predestination. I didn't know it was in the Bible. As would be the case in many of your lives, not all of your lives, and then you find out because Christians believe the Bible that you believe in predestination because it's in the Bible. But then you try to weasel around what it actually would mean. Some of you are still in that position, came to the right place. And then eventually, hopefully, you say, God is sovereign in salvation. It wasn't because of anything good in me. God determines who is saved. Yes, we're morally responsible but God is the one who does this. And hopefully we move ourselves to the Apostle Paul's position, even though there's mystery involved as to how this works, even though all people are called to believe in Jesus through the gospel proclamation, to know that when you're saved, you can look back and say, it wasn't because of what I did, it's because of his plan and purpose. Hopefully we're with the the Apostle Paul, at least eventually, chapter one, verse one, how does he respond to this? Excuse Excuse me, chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it goes from the shelf of controversy to maybe I don't like this, to this confuses me, to why didn't I learn this in Sunday school? To blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is absolutely amazing, this reality that God does what he wants to do even when it comes to salvation. Absolutely amazing. What's also interesting and amazing, if we keep reading in that verse, it says, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I'm emphasizing all things because I want you to see this God who has a destination for individuals, not just for the world in general, but for individuals, this God works all things after the counsel of his will. That would include things that regard salvation, but it would also include everything, because I think here all things means all things. This God works all things in the world that he's made according to the counsel of his will. Some might consider this to be dangerous. It's definitely unsettling. Hopefully it's worship inducing at the end of the day. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is absolutely staggering to my mind. It causes me to have so many questions. Another text is Romans 8 that I would like to have you look at, because in Romans chapter 8, when, this, when there's a fight about this topic, and there's a lot of fights about this topic, there's a lot of debate about this topic, but when there's an argument about this, Romans 8 is typically used by people like me who believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, And people like you who believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. And it's also used by people who don't believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. And so I want to help you with the debate. Not for debate's sake, I hope. But I do want to help you with the debate to see clearly. I hope as you're debating, you have a smile on your face. And I hope you have good motives. Wanting to move someone from not believing in the absolute sovereignty of God to believing it, because that's good. But hopefully we'll do so out of a good spirit. Romans 8, 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What I want you to notice for the debate is for those whom he foreknew. It doesn't say or imply what he foreknew. It says whom. He's talking about people. He's talking about individuals. And you might be saying, why is that important? Because those who don't believe in the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation read it as if it says what he foreknows. Because they're seeing it as what he foresees. And they're gonna say it this way. Well, okay, I guess the word's in there so I have to grapple with it. So here's how it works. God looks down the corridor of time and he sees Pat, out of the goodness of Pat's heart, some little glimmer of hope or something, reaching out and initiating. And based upon what God sees Pat do, what he foresees, God responds in predestines. That's a classic view of denying the absolute sovereignty of God. It's not what I'm promoting. Those whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew or foresaw, it's personal. It's a person. This is critical and important in all of this. This is why thoughtful theologians who would believe in the absolute sovereignty of God would point this out and then say, Since it's personal, the idea is he sets his love upon them. Like in old Elizabethan English, so-and-so knew his wife. Loved intimacy. And in our case in Romans 8, it's not physical intimacy, physical love, or sexual kind of thing. But there is love. He knows in a special, unique kind of way the person not the what the person does, who would be dead in trespasses and sins, by the way, according to chapter two of Ephesians. If God foresees an event, he sees hostility according to Ephesians two. But he's for loving, and based upon his love upon a person, he predestines them, all the to the point of glorification. So I hope I've helped you in the debate to sort it out a little bit. Those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreloved, He's sovereign and he carries it all the way, the unbreakable chain of redemption to glorification. We already looked at John chapter three, verse eight. I won't reread that text, but two more texts. I'll just quickly reference Ephesians chapter two regarding God's sovereignty. But in Ephesians two, verses one to three, we're dead in trespasses and sins, classic depravity text. And then, Verse four, the two best words in the Bible. If you've never listened to Martin Lloyd-Jones, look him up on the internet and listen to his sermon on this. But God, in his great Welsh accent, famous preacher in England, but that's he's he's not British by birth. um, And just great stuff. I so wish I could have an accent like that. But God, he would say those are the best two words in the whole Bible. But see, it's sovereignty of God and salvation. We're spiritually dead, and then God looks to see what we'll do. Well, he would be looking for a long time. But God being rich in mercy, and then it goes on to say in Ephesians 2 and 4 and 5 made us alive together with him. Who's sovereign in salvation? It's not Pat making himself alive. He made us alive together with Him. God is sovereign in salvation. The image is profound. We're spiritually dead. We don't have the spiritual sniffles. And God kind of helps us with some spiritual medicine. We're spiritually dead, and He makes us alive together with Him. And that's the basis for Him going on to say, For by grace you've been saved. It's all of God. That's why we talk about sovereign grace God freely acting, and He does the work. He does the work. It's very humbling. It's devastatingly humbling. It might lead you to conclude that when you get to heaven, you'll praise Jesus for being the Savior. And it won't be mutual praise. It will be worthy as the lamb, as we sang this morning. And all Christians know that and believe that to be true but oftentimes when we don't believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, it actually doesn't make sense that we would give him all of the praise. Okay, Acts 13 is the final text before we move on. and Acts 13, when it comes to evangelism and sharing the gospel with other people, Acts 13 is so helpful, you don't get the sense that, the, that Jesus ascends to heaven and as he's ascending, he's all troubled by the apostle Paul teaching the sovereignty of God and salvation. Okay, Um, you don't get that sense at all uh, that that the Apostle Paul is taking his cues from Jesus and the Apostle Paul believes that God is sovereign in salvation just like Jesus would have him uh, indicate and they're preaching Christ in that light. Acts 13, 48, um, maybe before we read it, I I know one person who hated the sovereignty of God and salvation so much, um, they're no longer alive so now they totally believe it. So I just want to make sure we're we're clear on that. that person now believes in the sovereignty of God like I don't believe in the sovereignty of God because when you meet God, you'll believe that he's sovereign. So I'm just trying to get you on board before you meet God. Anyway, this person hated it so much and debated it so much that he eventually, because he didn't know what to do with Acts 13, 48, opted for one of the, one of the cult's wacko weirdo translations not based upon the Greek text because he just couldn't handle a God who was sovereign in salvation. I want you to handle the God who is sovereign in salvation and have it fuel your evangelism. How about Acts 13, 48? It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, the good news about Christ, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, what? Believed. As many as were appointed unto eternal life, Believed. That is so helpful. You, you need that in your, in your equipment for evangelism. You need that. I was going to say in your arsenal, but it sounds too mean. It sounds too heavy handed. You, you need that as a tool. You need that as a, as a paradigm and a, and a grid as you think. And you go tell people the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ. And you tell them to believe in Jesus. And you tell them the good news of forgiveness and reconciliation. And that Christ was raised from the dead. And if you trust in him, you'll be raised too. And you tell them all these good things But you need to know this so that you're short of being a manipulator, of being a salesperson and closing the deal and thinking you are the sovereign spirit and the spirit is not the sovereign spirit. As many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. Really important that we think this through. Years ago, I've told the story many times. I'll tell it again this morning. Um, years ago, Todd Swift and I were teaching a class to pastors in Siberia. So I thought of that this morning as I went outside. At least it wasn't 60 below Fahrenheit. Anyway, and the, at the particular school where they were, if they believed in the sovereignty of God and salvation, they couldn't pastor a church. So... We were not allowed to use certain loaded words or phrases, but the people who asked us to teach knew what we believed, and they said, we want you to teach on apologetic methodology, defending the faith in evangelism, and go for it, but only use Bible texts. They didn't want us to talk about history. They didn't want to talk about historical persons by and large, and certainly don't use theological categories, so we knew what we signed up for, so one day in the class, I wrote Acts, or excuse me, Acts 13, 48 on the board. And then the translator translated it, and I said, true or false? And they wouldn't answer. They wouldn't answer. In one sense, I don't blame them, lest they be kicked out of the school. As many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. That's how this works. And God's sovereignty. Now, I'm not gonna take the time to do a whole series on apologetic methodology and how to do evangelism and all that kind of thing. There are other factors. Romans chapter 10 says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we do preach Christ to everyone. God uses that not to guarantee conversions, but where people are gonna be converted, God will use the preaching of his word. And so, yes, we preach to everyone, but we don't try to convert people because Only God can do that, right? Only the spirit of God makes people born again. But he does use preaching through the process. As an aside, if you're ever looking to read a very interesting book about all of that kind of stuff, there's a a very helpful book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God uh, by J.I. Packer, and it's saying the same sorts of things as to how all of these things work. Okay, John 3, we skipped it, but just, I I can't help myself, and I mentioned it in the other services, and I don't want you to feel cheated. Um, Sovereign in salvation, John 3, the Spirit goes wherever he wants to go. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus says you must be born again, but he doesn't say how to be born again. You must be, but he doesn't say how, because the Spirit goes wherever he wants to go. So I won't write a book called How to Be Born Again as some evangelicals have. I'm gonna say you must be born again. You must believe in Jesus to be saved. I can't tell you how to be born again because that's what the Spirit of God does and as many as are appointed unto eternal life will believe and when you believe, that's evidence of the Spirit's regenerating work. Fascinating stuff, let's move on. Let's move on to number 10. Number 10, demonstration of the sovereignty of God in spiritual maturity and preservation, let's call it. Spiritual maturity and preservation. We're going to look at Philippians chapter one, verse six, and John chapter 10. We could go to Romans chapter eight, verses 29 to 30 again, but we won't. But Philippians one, six is a classic text. John chapter 10 is a classic text as well. God is sovereign, God is in charge, God is all powerful in not only saving people, but also in keeping them, preserving them, helping them to grow spiritually on their journey, their spiritual journey. Um, Isn't it funny, I don't even wanna say the word journey, I put it in scare quotes because it's just become so silly. I think today, if you start a church today and you wanna be cool and hip and have a lot of people come, it has to have the word journey in it, uh, or something with water flowing, or some, something like that, or anyway, it's just, it's so interesting how we, how we do these things sometimes in evangelical church. Welcome to Journey Bible Church with flowing rivers in your heart. Okay, I, see, I, you can tell I've, I've done too many of these already. I digress. I apologize. I um, apologize. <laughs> so interesting what we do. You know what, I, I want to call, if, if I ever plant another church somewhere else, I want it to be called Skull Bible Church, because I think that's cool. <laughs> Calvary means skull, so see, that would be hip, and I would go, I'd buy another Harley Davidson, and it would be all about that, but not really. Um, one way to surely be irrelevant is to try to pursue relevance. <laughs> you're you're going to be the one that looks silly in the end, so um, we're just going to keep doing what we do. All right. Philippians chapter one, verse six says, I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you will bring it, that is the good work, to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Sovereignty in preservation, in growing, in keeping. God starts a work The Apostle Paul, confident that God won't stop doing the work in that person's life. Sees them through to the very end. Sovereign in keeping them and preserving them. Will there be bumps along the road? Well, in a fallen world, living a fallen life, yes. Will it always and forever be the perfect upright trajectory? I don't think so. But he will keep It's true, the Bible does talk about apostates, it does talk about people who make a profession and it doesn't stick, it's not real, if you will. First John chapter two, verse 19 would talk about that, that's not what we're talking about. But where there is a genuine work of God in a person's life, I'm confident, Paul says, that he, God who began the good work, will be faithful to perfect it. And it's good to even think in terms of, if I started the good work, It's no wonder that I'm gonna lose it. If it's me, it's not gonna be true to the end. If I convert somebody, how am I gonna keep them? I'm not sovereign. I don't wanna convert anybody. I wanna preach Christ to everyone knowing full well that all those who've been appointed unto eternal life will believe and God who brings about regeneration is the God who keeps them and he'll keep them to the very end. Sovereignty. John chapter 10 is another one. John 10 Jesus is sovereign. So the spirit is sovereign, John chapter three, Ephesians chapter one, the father is sovereign. And too many of us as Christians think, well, but, but Jesus, he tried really hard to be sovereign. But you know what? It just doesn't always work. Now, I don't know of any Christian who would actually say that. But my theology for a long time in my Christian life reflected that. thought Jesus was a great savior. And Jesus, in effect, tried to save everybody. But not everybody's saved. And so therefore, Jesus, in other words, isn't sovereign. Isn't sovereign. I now have come to believe, along with a lot of you, thanks for being patient with me, that the cross work of Christ is successful because of his power, wisdom, and design, and his intent, if you will, sovereign to the very end. I think you'll believe it too if you see John chapter 10. John 10 verse 11 says, quoting Jesus, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So far so good? Okay, I hope it is. I believe that my whole Christian life, but somebody had to urge me to keep reading John 10. He lays his life down for the sheep. Will he keep them? Will he preserve them? Will he save them? John 10, verse 27, still in the same chapter, still talking about the same things. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you see what I'm trying to show you there? He gives his life for his sheep. I give them, my sheep, eternal life. No one will snatch them from my hand. Sovereignty and preservation, in keeping, implied spiritual growth as well. It is going to happen. They're going to hear my voice and they're gonna follow me. Not they might, he actually says they will, which has made me adjust some of my thinking, probably lots of us together. You know, I'm so fond of saying this, I'll keep saying it in different contexts. Jesus is better than I even thought he was. I've always thought Jesus is great. Upon becoming a Christian in the real sense, not in a cultural sense, I thought he was extraordinarily great, put my my eternal destiny in his hands, so to speak. But the more you learn, the more you realize he's even better than I thought he was. He didn't come to make us savable. He didn't come to give eternal life as potentially true. I give my life, I lay my life down for the sheep. Dot, 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 I'll lose none of them. I'll lose none of them. I want to add one more aspect here and then we'll talk about some application. Sovereign in spiritual maturity, preservation. Think with me, if you would, about how it is we're supposed to grow spiritually. How, what, are, what are the means that God uses? to have us grow spiritually and keep us safe and spiritually mature and growing. How does that happen? The ridiculous would be, I think, if, if he's not sovereign in it, well, well, God asked us to start committees. And so let's, let's all get together and we'll have a meeting and we'll say, all right, how, how, what have you found to be helpful in your life? And what have you found to be helpful in your life? And, and so let's start telling people now, if you wanna be spiritually mature, here's what you should do. That would sound like God isn't very sovereign. God is not telling us how to do this. It might make us um, comfortable, but how about if God says, here are the means by which you grow spiritually and are kept safe because I say so and I know so and it's gonna be good for you. Maybe you see where I'm going. I hope you know where I'm going. Here's a hint. Jesus said, I will build what? My church, Matthew 16. Oh, and then we learn more. If we keep reading the New Testament, he gives gifts as he leaves, as he ascends. He gives gifts to his church, Ephesians chapter four, for the building up of the body of Christ. Oh, sovereignty, because I might say, okay, folks, gather around. Here's what I found to be helpful to grow spiritually, point number one. Point number two. Well, I might have some good life experience, but the fact of the matter is, Jesus said he'd build his church, and his church has been given by him gifted individuals. None of us have all of the gifts, according to 1 Corinthians, so we need each other. I don't have all of the spiritual gifts. Between my wife and I, we don't have all of the spiritual gifts. I mean, we're super gifted, but I digress. <laughs> so, so we need you, And our kids actually need the church as well if they're going to grow spiritually because the sovereign God of the universe said he's going to build his church and gives gifts to human beings for the building up of the body of Christ. Sovereign in that sense. The means actually are given to us as to how to grow spiritually. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. I've met Christians before, and when I say, oh, where do you go to church? Why don't. Well, I get it because there are lots of crazy churches and lots of crazy people in crazy churches. Cuz we're not perfect. But he's ordained the means and he's sovereign. We need to remember that. Now in the in the midst of debates, Christians who are debating these kinds of issues, this is why and I stand in the in the in the Protestant tradition of these battles and debates We've kept it pretty lean. What is required for spiritual growth and maturity? Well, not this holy day, and this holy day, and this holy day, and this holy day. No, what you, and not this sacrament, and this sacrament, and this sacrament, and this sacrament. It's been far leaner as a product of the debate. What does God require? for spiritual growth and maturity. In the church, the preaching of the, the right preaching of the word of God, first on the list, as soon as we get the gospel right in those things. And with it, the right administration of the sacraments is how we would say it in stuffy theological language. The Lord's Supper and baptism means to spiritual growth and maturity and preservation in the life of the church. And with it, eventually, accountability and discipline. What I'm stressing to you all is church is actually God's sovereign means. He didn't say, hey, Pat, why don't you figure it out? Or why don't you have a vote? No, actually, it's the church. God uses the church. And I don't mean the building. For our growth and maturity and our preservation with accountability and all of these things, feeding and leading. It does cause me to be careful then. Causes me to be careful. I want it to cause you to be careful. Be careful. What do we mandate that other Christians do to be spiritually mature? Just be careful when you say, have you had your quiet time this morning? Because if not, well, that's, that might be in 3 Timothy, but it's not in the Bible that I have. Don't get me wrong, the Bible's important. It's God's word and we're to meditate on God's word. Oh, Okay, that, that, that's right. But the way I do it might be different than the way you do it. And there's freedom in acknowledging the difference. Right? So just, just be cautious and careful about what you mandate and impose upon other people and make it sound like this is what you must do. Spiritual disciplines are good things, but what's interesting about the spiritual disciplines movement is quite oftentimes it's distinctly not Protestant because it's you must do these things on a regular basis, or you're not growing spiritually, never mind what the Bible says. So I'm gonna try to share good ideas with you sometimes, but when I do, I'm gonna try to say, these are just my practices and my good ideas, not thus saith the Lord. I'm so weird about it, I'll acknowledge it, that on Christmas Eve, as I've mentioned recently, I'll say, if you're not doing anything on Christmas Eve, we would love to have you come and sing together and enjoy some time together. It's because I know enough about history to to indicate I don't want it to be Christ mass, Eve service, and if you're not here, you're not maturing, you're not growing, you're actually in sin. Who is going to dictate to the people of God what they must do and must not do to grow spiritually? I think it should be the sovereign God. And so I am gonna say to you, I'll see you next Sunday because you should be here gathered with the people of God on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. I'm gonna join many a Protestant who says, if I mandate more than that, I'm attacking the sufficiency of the Lord's Day, which is what God decreed. Just giving you something to think about. Fascinatingly enough, there's great freedom okay, we better move on. How about let's apply some of these things. I've got a big, long list of application. We won't get it all done, so pray for me that I would choose wisely. How about let's start with applying this when it comes to human responsibility. Let's apply it in human responsibility. If God is absolutely sovereign, working all things after the counsel of his will, how is it that we're called to be responsible? And I'll quickly reference, but importantly reference, Philippians chapter two, verses 12 and 13. Here's the good balance that I don't understand. To quote Philippians two, in the original language, you, it's not in the ESV, but it's there. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he doesn't mean work for your salvation because he condemns people who teach that in chapter three. He's talking to people that understand salvation is of the Lord, but he says, you work it out. Live your life, love your neighbor, live for the glory of Christ. You do it. You do the right thing. You do so in the imperative mood. I love it. So I'll tell you, do the right thing. Love God, love neighbor. It's a mandate. Do God's law. out of uh, Yes, out of uh, view of what Christ has done for you, but you must do this. The next verse, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. It causes me to hold my head like this to think, I don't, how, how do those two things work? I don't know exactly how those two things work. And I'm gonna join the, the big long list of Christians who've tried to think about these things and think passionately and deeply and carefully and debate about them, but I'm gonna have a category for Mystery. I don't know exactly how these things work. You do it, but you need to know that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. He's gonna get the credit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. You get the idea of self-control and so on. I don't know exactly how it works, but I'm not gonna say I believe in the sovereignty of God, so I just stay at home, and I don't go to work and I'm not involved, and I'm not involved, and I'm passive, and no. I'm super active, passionately so, knowing that God is working work in my life and that He gets the credit for the good things. I think if we don't get that, we're, we're gonna be out of balance, we're gonna be out of whack. How it works together, don't know. If you know how it works together, I don't believe you. <laughs> Both things are true in different senses. Okay, applying this a little bit further, how about to our political concerns? Uh, We apply this to our political concerns. Again, knowing God is absolutely sovereign. We looked at Daniel 2. No one is in authority apart from God's sovereign will. They're responsible, but at the same time, we're called to love our neighbor. So I care about politics. I don't preach politics here because it's not what we're called to do here. But I live in two worlds, this redemptive world and a common world, and I have responsibilities in both places, and I care about politics and am politically involved. Why? Because I'm called to love my neighbor. But I do sleep at night, at least better than I would otherwise, as I like to say, because I know God is sovereign. But it's not a call to passivity. It is a call to resting in God and what he does. But he does use means. I'll also remind you, this is not the new Jerusalem, but that would be for another time and a different concern. How about applying God's sovereignty to your worries? I'll say, take heart. Matthew 10, a sparrow doesn't fall from the sky apart from God's sovereign will. I'm not gonna live a day longer than I'm supposed to, a day shorter than I'm supposed to. Doesn't mean I'm not responsible to try to take care of myself, but I trust in God's sovereignty so I don't have to be worried. How about applying sovereignty to our praying? Some people say, well, if God is sovereign, then don't pray. Usually they'll say, why pray, but they mean don't pray. How about for starters, I hope you've learned enough, I pray because he's sovereign and he says so. And if he says so, as the sovereign, I'm gonna pray. But to move beyond being cute about it, I do know that God uses means. I'll go on record as saying God uses prayer but I know the God who ordains the ends also ordains the means. I don't think when I pray, I'm telling God things he doesn't know. I don't think I'm changing God for that matter, but the God who ordains the means, or the ends, ordains the means, and that's certainly changing me. And maybe one more thing. Again, I'll admit mystery. In Romans chapter eight, it talks about the sovereignty of God in prayer because we're not sovereign. We don't we, we don't know everything. Now, we know some things in the Bible so as to not pray like fools, so we don't say, Lord, please um, apply the atoning work of Jesus to Satan. Maybe a little kid would say something like that, but not in those words, but we'll help them to mature and say, you know, the Bible actually gives us enough to know that Satan's not going to be converted and saved. But I'm not talking about that. What about the things that we we just don't know about our lives? Whether it be about a job or how long we would live or marriage or singleness or church or all kinds of things. We don't know God's sovereign decree. He has one. Romans 8 is good because it says this the Spirit of God intercedes on behalf of the children of God. So that when we don't know how to pray as we should, we still pray and we pray with confidence because the spirit intercedes on our behalf. So I don't wanna be cute about it or trivial or childish, but I pray with confidence to the best of my ability knowing full well that by the time my prayer reaches the throne room of heaven, it's translated correctly, because the spirit of God knows the sovereign will of God. And so I pray. Read Romans 8, it's fascinating. Intercedes on our behalf. So I pray with confidence even though I'm not sovereign and I don't know the sovereign will of God. When it comes to our attitude, it should be one of praise. Habakkuk 3 is one we've referred to again and again verse 19, praising God for his sovereignty, not something we're against. And then maybe we should also acknowledge when it comes to God's sovereignty, we shouldn't question God's sovereignty. And that would be Romans 9:19 9, and following. Romans 9, when we question the sovereignty of God, they've just come off of Romans chapter 8, which is so clear and bold, and I think the person Paul has in mind in Romans 9 understands that. Romans 9, 19 says, you will say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? But Paul says helpfully in Romans 9:20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Let's question God like a sanctified psalmist does. How long? Why? Like children, we don't don't know and we want to know and we're suffering and we have anguish. There's that kind of questioning. But to question God as if He's on trial because you don't like His sovereignty, that's Romans 9. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to be those people. I have a long list of Christians who've lived throughout the ages who have believed in the absolute sovereignty of God. Um, Some of the greatest evangelists, by the way, that our world has ever known. Uh, I won't take the time to read uh, that list, happy to share it with you on a different occasion. Uh, But I do want to read a couple of paragraphs from our church's confession. Our confession is not inspired, Um, it's not over the Bible but it's a way of writing down what we think the Bible means by what it says so that we can either agree and be church members together or disagree and not be church members together. And I wanna read a couple sections because it's so good. And it sounds like I'm reading the Apostle Paul uh, or Jesus, but I'm not because we're trying to encapsulate and boil it all down in a simple couple, couple of paragraphs and I wanna read it for your edification and so that you know the things I've been saying This is not patianity, because that sounds gross. Um, This is not my religion. This is us trying to stand in a long line of believers who've had to fight about these things and who've had to wrestle with these things. So listen to a couple of paragraphs if you would. It's rich, good, helpful theology. God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. Not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases." In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is the most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the creator." and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. One more paragraph. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And I so want to talk about line after line after line in that because it helps us But we are out of time. We're gonna pray, then we're going to eat and drink in remembrance of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he has sovereign decreed and declared so that we might be strengthened spiritually.